Well, good morning. Thank you guys for gathering this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium, or if you're gathered with us online, thank you for bringing the church into uh, your living room, your dining room table. Uh, thanks for inviting us into those uh, spaces. And if you're somebody, if you're new to Crosspoint, whether here in person or online, uh, my name is, I'm just gonna introduce myself. My name is Jamie. It's my joy and privilege to serve as one of the pastors at Crosspoint. Uh, and it's my great joy to be able to open up the Bible with you all this morning, all right? And so we get the great honor, the great privilege. Um, God in his kindness and his grace has given us his word that is living and active. And so believing that it's not just gonna do something is like, oh, maybe we take a few notes and then like later this week, maybe we'll seek to apply it. And those are all good things, but like it's living and active, like right here, right now, praying that the Lord is gonna do something like in our midst, in real time, that the spirit might bring about change. All right. And so what we've been doing over the last few weeks as kind of our fall series is we've been journeying through what are called the Psalms of Ascent. In this series, we've called Songs for the Journey. And what would happen in the life of God's people is they would periodically, they would travel to Jerusalem, to the holy city, to Zion, and there they would gather for worship and celebration. If, if there's a picture that maybe you have of, of church and of, of Christianity of like, it's just this kind of dull, boring sort, sort of thing, like the Bible knows nothing of that like these were epic celebrations where the people would gather and it would be like a Christmas day celebration where you're just like I can't wait to go and to be with God's people but oftentimes people found themselves scattered and so they had to journey and so what they would do on this journey is think of it in this way this was like the playlist that they would sort of dial up and they would go not just as isolated individuals but families would gather together and friends and neighbors and they would journey and as they traveled they would sing these songs and so, yes, we're going to like read the text this morning, and I'm not going to sing this uh, particular psalm because that would just be awful. But we have to know this. In that time, in that place, several thousand years ago, they would sing these. It would be a way of remembering, of calling to mind all that God had done. And also knowing that it was a dangerous journey. It was hard. It was difficult. And so that journey language is super important for us. Like every single one of us, the, the reality is... Like, we're on this spiritual journey, and these songs, in the same way that they helped God's people thousands of years ago, they help us right here, right now. And so this morning, where we find ourselves is Psalm 127. And so if you brought a Bible, please turn there. If you're at home watching, get a Bible out, turn there. Or you can always go to cpwp.life on your phone, tablet, whatever device you've got, and swipe over till you see a card that says Message Notes. You'll find the text there, and you'll find any of the, the slides, things that I put up on the screen uh, will be listed there as well. There's space for you to actually take notes with that. And so if you're able, I want to invite you, will you stand as I read God's word? Psalm 127, I just want to read this in its entirety. It says, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Verse three, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's word. Here, I want to invite you, wherever you are, online, in person, let's pray this prayer together, asking that the Lord might illuminate our minds, our hearts, our thing. I'll put the words on the screen, but please pray this aloud with me. 
Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us this day. Amen. Please be seated. So I want to pose a question as we get into this particular text. And as I read it, maybe there's something that stood out to you. I mean, the Lord, you know, there's this word here about building a home and then watchmen watching over the city and protection and all, all this sort of stuff. And there's a little bit about sleep. And so you're like, oh, maybe, yeah, maybe a Sunday afternoon nap. Maybe that's where your mind went. I don't know. And then verses like four to five, early three to five, we get this behold. And he starts just talking about children and like arrows and like, what do we do with that? And so I just want to acknowledge the front end, okay? We're going to spend more of our time in verses one to two, because three to five, like, it seems a bit disjointed. It's like, you're talking about these things, then it's like pivots. And all of a sudden it's like, why are we talking about kids? Like, what does that have to do with the previous verses? Now, it will make sense. You just got to hang in there with me. There's some really profound things that are happening in verses three, four, and five that aren't just like the writer of the psalm just sort of like being ADD and like, I don't know, I'm going to talk about this now and just jumping over here. But rather, it ties directly to what was in the preceding verses. And so we're going to get there. If you're kind of wondering, like, I don't know how to make sense of all this, just hang, hang tight. But what I want to put before us then is a question as we enter into this psalm and we think about all that's been happening. I mean, I, I'm so thankful that God has us in these particular psalms, in this particular part of scripture during the, this time. And there's some themes we keep coming back to because the reality of like what this year has brought. And I think there's just increased level of anxiety. There's sadness. There is, there's been real loss and grief. And there's just so many things that are just happening culturally. All right. And so one of the things that kind of leaves us in this place, not just individually, but I think collectively as well, just sort of this cultural exhaustion. Now, I think pre-pandemic, you would certainly talk to people and say, like, hey, how are you doing? And people would say, I'm busy, all right? And that, has, that still continues to hold true. But I just think there's a weariness. And with that weariness comes increased, like there's just an increased level of anxiety. And so I want to ask this question, like, why are we so tired and anxious? So let's acknowledge, for one, like, there is a weariness. I do think we're tired. I'm tired. My anxiousness, like, I'm not even... I don't think particularly overly anxious person, but like that has ramped up. Like there's these, this is really unique season that we're in. And I know we can, we could call to mind a million things, right? That are external, all right? We just talk pandemic, we can talk injustice, we can talk election stuff that's happening. There's so many things that, that are going on, right? There's so many things that we're just, I mean, we're sitting here even today, like faces covered. I mean, this, all these things are just sort of like this heightened sense of like, man, the world is weird right now, right? And so that's at an external level. But what this Psalm does and what the scriptures continually invite us into is like, hey, yeah, we can look at the external, but the external things shift and change and morph and all, all of that. This is asking us, like the difficulty in the journey for these folks now is less about external. And for us, it's less about the external and more. It's like, what's it doing internally? 
And so that's what we want to focus in on. And this psalm is going to help us actually do that. There's a writer that I've appreciated for many, many years, a guy by the name of David Brooks, um, and he's written a number of books. But one of his first ones that came out was called On Paradise Drive. And I went back and looked, and at least the version I had was published in 2005. And so I think even 15-some years ago, him talking about our cultural moment, and that was 2005, I think is even more spot on. And I think it speaks to what we feel, because there is this pressure, and this is what the psalmist is getting at, like there's this pressure that we feel to perform a certain way, to accomplish this sort of drive, and then when we run up against the external circumstances that this year has brought, it leaves us even more exhausted, more tired, more anxious, more stressed. But look at these words. Now, he's describing culture, and he's not advocating for this, he's simply kind of doing some um, cultural analysis. So it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but follow along. He says this, what is most absolute is not truth and falsehood. So he's describing the culture, virtue and vice. What matters most absolutely is the advancing self. And the individual, he says, is perpetually moving toward wholeness and completion. And ideas are adopted as they suit that mission. He says, individual betterment is the center around which the entire universe revolves. And he says, this is a brutal form of narcissism. The weight of the universe is placed on the shoulders of the individual. Accordingly, in modern American culture, the self becomes semi-divinized. So just stop for a moment. There's a little bit more to the quote. I'll continue, but just take that in for a moment. The self has become the epicenter. And so part of our exhaustion, part of the exhaustion for me and the anxiousness is it's not just out there in the world, like we buy into this. Even those that say, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ and he's my peace and my hope and my joy. Yet there can be this tendency, if we're honest, to be like, yeah, but the world, the weight of it's on my shoulders. And we start to put ourselves in this spot. It's a semi-divinized, like we think that there's some aspect of things that like only God was meant to carry. And we're like, oh yeah, I can help with that. No wonder it would crush us. He continues, he says, people feel free to pick, up, pick and choose their own religious beliefs because whatever serves the self-journey toward happiness, well, it must be godly and true. This means that each individual must be the locus of values. It means that the central question of life is not what does God command and love, but rather what is my destiny and fulfillment? It is not our duty to humbly obey God's law and submit to the universal order. It is our duty, he says, to create and explore ourselves, to realize our own inner light. It is up to each of us, and here's the phrase, to justify our own existence. You wanna talk about weight and exhaustion and anxiousness? It's when you and I forget that only God, through the finished work of his son Jesus, justifies us. We are constantly in pursuit of justification. Will I be justified? Will I be seen as righteous? Will I be seen as having worth, value, and dignity based on like how this person responds to me or how I do at work or how I perform in an athletic contest or how I am handling the pandemic? And maybe you're looking at other people and like, well, they seem to be handling it differently or maybe they're handling it better. And we believe all these things. There's this drive here towards self-justification. And this Psalm wants us to free us from that. You don't have to justify your existence. You want to know why we're tired as we buy into that particular lie. So let's look here at what the psalmist is talking about, what we're invited into, and hopefully get some right perspective on like, hey, what's our responsibility? Because I don't think there's a call to just sit back and like, all right, cool. God, let me know when this pandemic's over. Let me know when everything's better. Like, you got it. Well, he does have it, 
but he also does invite us. So what's that sort of balance, all right? So look back with me at verse one. There's some pursuits that are talked about. And I wanna put before us, like, these are right and true and they can be a beautiful thing. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. All right, just very quick summary, right? Building a home. Yes, it's probably about the physical structure and, and all of that, all right? So unless the Lord builds the house, and it's like, well, what does that mean? It's like, is the Lord gonna swing a hammer for me? Like, how's that gonna happen, right? Like, he's gonna help you with your home remodel. Like, what do we make of that? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. But then there's this also, this other part, like, well, we are called to build. So is it the Lord doing it or am I doing it? Like, big theme here is provision, really, and protection. That's what we see in verse one. Like, we wanna be provided for, we wanna be cared for, so a home, a shelter is a place, like, of provision, right? Just think more general, like a flourishing life, a life, um, yeah, just a life of, of joy and peace and some harmony and just an enjoyment of the things that the Lord has given to us. What has the Lord provided? But then also this protective sense, right? Like what you have, what the Lord has given, like it's good and right to wanna to protect it, right? Like I locked my car last night. Right? I'm I don't think that's wrong. I don't think it was like, well, I, you know, if I really trusted the Lord, I wouldn't have locked the car. The camera for the live stream was in my car last night. I locked that, right? It would have been bad if that had gotten stolen last night, right? Like all of these things, I don't think that's bad. So what do we make of this? Like, is it God or is it us? Or what, what is this? Like, well, yeah, I'll do most of it and then I'll call on God when I need a little bit of help. Like, that's not what this is talking about. And maybe there's this phrase that you've heard before and I think it can be well-intentioned, um, but I think it misses the thrust of the scriptures. I think it misses the heartbeat of what's here in Psalm 127. So maybe this question, are we supposed to just quote, let go and let God? Maybe somebody said that to you before, in the middle of stress and anxiety, you just, you just gotta let go and, and let God. Now, there's some truth in that, right? I'm not supposed to carry everything. You're not supposed to carry everything. We're exhausted from trying to justify our own existence. So yes, there's a great invitation to let God, but that can go too far sometimes. Like sometimes that is just rooted in like a passivity. The Apostle Paul spoke of this. If you were to go to a book, um, this letter that he writes to a church in Thessalonica, there's first and second Thessalonians. And in second Thessalonians, I'll read to you out a couple verses out of chapter three. It's gotten so crazy. Just imagine this, there's an entire culture, there's an entire community that's in a let go and let God, all right? They literally thought Jesus is coming back any day now. All right, so it's good that they had hope in the return of Christ, but they're like, listen, it's happening like next Wednesday, I guarantee it. So I don't need to work, I don't need to try and provide for my family, I don't need to, I can quit my job, I can kick back, I, I can relax. And Paul's like, wait, 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 that's not what we're talking about. Like resting in God, all right, doesn't mean kicking back and doing nothing. So Paul writes these words of rebuke to them. He says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now he has, there's other things in and around this particular passage, but that's kind of a quick summary. He's like, all right, let go and let God, like you're just kicking back and you're living off of other, other people and you're just sort of like, hey, I'm just gonna do, and I'm gonna, but I'm gonna kind of stir things up, stir the pot is kind of a busy body, but I'm not actually gonna be busy like providing and taking care, like Paul is like, no, 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 no. That's not what the scriptures speak of because Paul understood 
as a good Jewish man, he would have been rooted in the scriptures from the very beginning through like just what he knew of Jesus and the reality of all of that. He would know the scriptures backwards and forwards. He would have had memorized the entire book of Genesis, all right, where he would have heard these words in Genesis 1, 20, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Where's the call there? It's a dominion, it's to work. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So there's this call to work from the very beginning. Work is not part of the curse. Like you're gonna work in the new heavens and the earth. God is not calling you to this eternal vacation, all right? Rather, he's inviting you to take the raw materials of the world and order them and put them together. Like work matters to God. So in this, when we talk about building the house and then watching and protecting, God's not calling us to sit back. That's why it would continue actually in verse 28. God blessed them because now he here talks about family as well. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So clearly, God is not anti-work. He's inviting us to participate. But we realize this can can go sideways. And so that's what we're going to look at in a moment. But I love this quote from J.I. Packer in his book, In Step with the Spirit. And he says this, he says, souls that cultivate passivity do not thrive, but waste away. The Christian's motto should not be let go and let God, but rather trust God and get going. I think that's a much more helpful perspective to have. Like we're going to trust God. God is the active agent. God is at work, but he invites us to participate. All right. Now, in that, though, what we've got to recognize, there are some warnings, though. So God's not anti you doing your work. He's not anti you engaging. But he is warning us there's a way to do your work that's going to increase your anxiety and stress and lead to a restlessness. And there's a way to do your work unto the Lord where you're trusting in him. And so what we see in verses 1 to 2 then as we look back really is what the problem is. And I would put before you, this is what's leading to all of us feeling exhausted and anxious. And so look back with me. Unless the Lord. So you hear the warning in that? You hear the admonition? Hey guys, you can build your home. You can participate. You can do your work. But unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it will what? Will labor in vain. It won't amount to anything. This is reminiscent of the book of Ecclesiastes. We studied that together for a, a long while. It was a good, amazing, depressing book, all right, with some joy sprinkled in, right? Like, but it's calling us this honesty of like, if we don't do our work, like participating with God, recognizing that he's ultimately in control, it's gonna lead to this vanity. And then unless, there's another warning, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman, who's staying awake at night, patrolling everything, keeping eye on everything, actually stays awake in vain. And then verse two, this is sort of a picture of burning the candle at both ends. Maybe you feel that right now, right? It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. So maybe your perspective amidst all the hardship and difficulties of life is like, I gotta get up a little earlier, I got more to do, and I gotta stay up later. And the Lord is saying, listen, I'm pro you being disciplined, I'm pro you doing work, but what it's painting a picture of is men and women who are taking things upon themselves that they weren't meant to carry. 
And so what it ends up resulting in, all right, it ends up resulting is it talks about anxious toil. And so one of the things I think for us to consider is to look at another passage of scripture, like what does it look like to heed these warnings? And the apostle John spoke of this as he records Jesus' word. There's these ama this amazing picture. Like if you have time today, go read John 15 in its entirety. But let me just share a couple of verses with you because I think it gets at the heart of what our invitation is. So yes, work, but also recognize that there's a way to do your work that is where you're trusting the Lord. And the language John 15 uses is abide. So to move from striving to abiding, like that's what the Lord wants for all of us. If you're sitting in a chair, you're watching online, or you're standing on the stage right now, he wants to move us from a place of striving, of trying to justify our own existence, to abiding in him. And when we actually abide, that's not like the Thessalonians who just kick back and just like, hey, I'm going to order another drink and I'm just going to wait till Jesus comes back. But rather, it's a call to do our work, but we do it in a way that actually brings life and flourishing. It doesn't bring this cultural exhaustion. And so in John 15, verse 5, Jesus says these words, I am the vine. I'm the source of life. And you are the branches, so you're connected to me. And whoever abides in me and I in, I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. We want fruitful lives, don't we? For apart from me, though, and here's the warning, and this is similar language to what we're finding here in Psalm 127, when the Lord says, unless, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's like the Lord is saying, unless you abide, unless you recognize that Jesus is the vine and you're the branches, you're not the source of life, you're connected to him, you're grafted into him, and when you live in that place, then you can do your work and you can produce fruit and it flourishes and it's beautiful. But if we lose sight of that, if we're like, hey, I'm the branch and I'm gonna go do my own thing and I don't need the vine anymore, like see how well that works out for you, right? Like if something happens to the source of life, I can remember this beautiful oak tree that we had planted uh, years ago by, by the city and it was starting to grow and take shape and then one day I came out and it was literally like every leaf on it was completely brown. And what had happened as we called the city and we were like, hey, what's, what's going on here? They realized that across the street there'd been a lightning strike and something had done some like this kind of irreparable damage damage to the entire root system and within a few days the whole thing had just shriveled up and died and every leaf was, was falling off it's this picture here if we're like oh, I'm gonna go do my own thing and I'll, I'll call on Jesus and maybe I'll try and connect with him a little bit from time to time it's like no no we need to stay connected all the time maybe a way to think about it is this without the vine everything is in vain you and I will only experience more and more anxiety if we stop abiding in Jesus and so consider this, in this moment, and the weightiness and the things that you brought in, I know there are external things that are incredibly difficult, some that I'm aware of, and some, if we were gonna have a conversation, I would learn things about each one of you, all right? I'm like, oh, I didn't know you are dealing with that. Oh, I didn't know that was weighing on you. I know there's particulars. But what we're invited to consider is, hey, when the Lord invites us to abide in him, to find our life in him, are we actually taking him up on that offer. Maybe you've had this experience before, like, because this language of abiding, there's a few different ways to think about it, right? If you're like, oh, I want this lamp to light up the room and you realize it's not plugged in, it's not plugged into the source. Like, it's a very basic example, but that's, that's oftentimes how I operate my life. Or maybe you've had this experience, right? Maybe you're on a plane, 
some of you, right? I, for me, it's, it's been a while since that's taken place, but you can think back to those days when you used to fly or whatever, right? And you get to your destination or you get back home. What is the thing that happens almost immediately when, when people land, right? I know there's always the guy that's like gonna jump up and jump in front of the line, right? But most of the time, here's what happens in our cultural moment, is it not? We reach into our pocket, we take our phone on, airplane mode goes off, and we're just like everyone. You just look around, pay attention. And I'm guilty, I'm not judging here. This is what I do, all right? I'm there. What am I doing in the moment? I'm so like disconnected from the world. Like something would have happened in the two hour flight that I was just on, like I need to know. It's this picture of like, I want to get reconnected. What if we long to connect with God as much as we long to get our phone turned back onto the internet the moment we land? Like, I think my life would look a lot different. That's the picture there. Like, what if every moment we're like, okay, and I'm not knocking phones, all right? If you wanna get me the iPhone 12, I'll come give it to me, right? Like, I'm not anti that. But what I am saying is this, there are all kinds of things in life where we'd love to connect and we're, we're actually abiding in all these other things and the Lord is saying, but you're missing the source. So maybe it's this sort of picture that you see there up in the screen. Like, how often is that? We're just like, okay. Maybe that's our anxiousness. Some of it's just like we've chosen to abide in the wrong things. And where the psalmist tells us then this ends up, he says we end up eating the bread of anxious toil. We're called to feast on the gospel. We're called to feast on Jesus. We're called to actually find him as the source of our life. And instead what we're taking in is the bread of anxious toil. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Like in a little while, we're going to celebrate this meal of communion where we remember what it is that nourishes us, what we're actually connected to as followers of Christ. And yet, I choose to eat the bread of anxious toil when I do my work apart from abiding in the Lord. And so what I want to do now, let's look at verses 3 to 5. And I think some of this hopefully will come into focus a little bit. Like, what do these verses have to do with, like, the things he's laid out in verses 1 to 2? And what we see here in some really unique ways, I would say, is this. It's the Lord's providence. That the Lord, you see the root there, like, provide. Like, the Lord is one who loves to provide. He loves to care. He invites us to participate. So don't quit your job tomorrow, all right? Be like, the Lord's got me, right? No, the Lord has you through this job that he's given you to work or whatever, right? Like, oh, I'm a parent, but I'm just gonna kick my kids out of the house. There are seven, you can't do that yet, right? Like, no, the Lord will provide. That's not the call. But it is a call to see the Lord's providence. And so if we look back through this, I said there's provision and protection. So look back with me at verse, verse three here. Um, it says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. And it says, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And so I wanna put before you there, that's a picture it's talking about with the sleep the Lord provides. Now, it is a good gift that the Lord gives to us rest. I'm assuming most of you did that last time. Maybe not for as long as you would have liked to. Maybe it was a bit more restless, maybe more tossing and turning than you would have liked. But the Lord granted sleep. Let's not miss, like, let's not lose sight of that. But this is speaking to something deeper than just our physical rest. And so another way to translate this I'll put it back there up on the screen. Another way to translate that last line, instead of for he gives to his beloved sleep, is he gives to his beloved while he sleeps. Now what does that translation of this get at? It's that while you sleep, 
The Lord is continuing to work out his will. The Lord is continuing to provide. The Lord is continuing to care. Like every night when you lay your head down on the pillow, it's not just about physical rest. It's this reminder. For one, what does he call you here? His beloved. Not the screw up, not the moron, not the one who didn't get it right that day. Hopefully we'll do better tomorrow. He calls you his beloved. And while you are sleeping, all right, he's doing all this work. Like the Lord is continuing to provide in all kinds of ways that you and I can't even comprehend. Not to mention just the breath that we take and that our body functions while, while we sleep, right? That the Lord is upholding and he's sustaining everything the Lord provides. He gives to his beloved while he sleeps. Let that be, it's kind of getting at this picture here. Like, yeah, there's work for you to do. Genesis chapter one, yes and amen. Work in the new heavens and new earth. Good work to do. Yes, it can be hard because of sin and everything that we live in right now. But know this, the Lord provides. He's not just providing sleep. The Lord is actually working out his good will, his pleasure. He's working it all out while you and I sleep. But that's not the only thing that was spoken of in this. Verse 1 talks about provision, but then it also talks about protection. And that's where verses 3 to 5 come in. I would say the Lord protects. And he uses this line, if we look back over these verses, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So look back with me, verses 3 to 5. It starts out with behold, which is this like kind of grabbing us by the shoulders, like, hey, pay attention. We need to dial in here. And it seems disjointed at first, like there's all this stuff, but culturally this would have made sense to the people. Because if you look at three to five, it says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Now implied in that as well as arrows get shot. And so at some point, like they should be shot and they should not, well, that, sorry, back up. They shouldn't be shot. They should be shot out of the home to go and flourish on their own. All right. So weird sound bite there. All right. But the, there is that imagery, and this is blessed is the man though who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. What's happening in verses three to five here is an answer to what we find with the watchman and the protection and all of that. Because very practically, as a family, you think of a dad that would grow older, eventually, what is he gonna rely on? There's no care facilities or places for him to go or for him and his wife to go to. Like it's this picture here of those that you've raised that are coming to your side. And so when you go and you talk with the person at the gate, that's where like disputes would get settled and sometimes there was battle that would take place and you know, these fights that would occur. It's like you roll up and you've got your, like, you've got your arrows in the quiver there, so to speak. Like it's this picture of like, oh, the Lord provides. The Lord is protecting you by means of this family. It's a gift. Doesn't mean there's not hardship or difficulty, all right? The psalmist here, I'm sure, had all kinds of issues. If it says of Solomon, you know the reality. Like, he had lots of trouble and difficulty. And so on one level, this is just a practical way to say, hey, how is the Lord gonna protect? Well, he does that through the giving of kids, of these sons, all of that, okay? Now, there's a whole other layer, and this is what I want us to see for just a moment. There's this beautiful other layer if we could kind of step back and think, okay, what is clear throughout this particular psalm? The Lord is doing the work. He's working while you sleep. 
And then even the nature of children, you think about this, right? And I know this is a, a family style service, so I'll try and be discreet here, but let me read this quote to you from Eugene Peterson. I love the way that he summarized this because even verses three to five are just another way to drive home the point. Listen, the Lord is the one that does the work. You participate, but it's the Lord that actually brings forth new life. And so look at this. I think this is just amazing, all right? In contrast to the anxious labor that builds cities and guards possessions, the psalm praises the effortless work of making children, opposed to the strenuous efforts of person who in doubt of God's providence and mistrust of human love seek their own gain by godless struggles is the gift of children, born not through human effort, but through the miraculous processes of reproduction which God has created among us. The example couldn't have been better chosen. So just think about that for a moment. Think about what you, if you're a parent, got to participate in and what you got to contribute, all right? Like it's this thing, like God is doing the work. Does he invite you to participate? Yeah, that's pretty great, all right? But it's him that's doing the work. And so he continues, what do we do to get sons and daughters? Well, very little. The entire miracle of procreation and reproduction requires our participation, but hardly in the form of what we call our work. We did not make these marvelous creatures that walk and talk and grow among us. We participated in an act of love that was provided for us in the structure of God's creation. Amen, right? I mean, what a beautiful image. Well, what he's doing here in three to five, he's given this sort of imagery, this metaphor, this analogy to say, okay, the Lord, you want him to provide and protect, like even just look to kids. He's like, did you participate? Yeah, you probably did, all right? And yet it's the Lord that's doing the work. And so for the last few minutes here, here's just what I wanna invite us into. I want us to consider this as we think about our restlessness, our tiredness, and I don't just mean a physical fatigue, though that might be present. There's this, there's just this low grade, kind of beneath the surface, anxiousness and stress and exhaustion. And I wonder how much of it, again, is just rooted in us trying to justify ourselves rather than knowing that we've been justified by God and that we would work, so we would work our jobs and we'd engage in friendships and relationships and we would, we would parent if that's what we've been called to, all of these things from a position of rest. Not taking a nap, but a deep rest, abiding in the love of God. And so I'll put before you this as we, as we close and just want us to sort of soak in this truth. Will you and I trust in the God who is, there's more than four things, but I'll give you four things here. This is out of a book by Tim Chester called You Can Change. And he talks about these four Gs. He, he says this, will you trust in the God who is great, who is glorious, who is good, and he's gracious. And so as we close our time in this psalm, as we will respond in, in worship and participating in a meal that the Lord has given us to remind us of his constant provision and grace, let me just for a moment put these things before you to just hear from the Lord, to ask the Spirit, will you take these truths, will you apply them to my heart? I don't know the particular circumstances. I don't know what you dragged in here this morning, but I do know this. If we rest in the fact that God is great, that he's glorious, that he's good and that he's gracious, bit by bit, 
some of the anxiousness will go away, some of the right proper motivation for our work, doing it in vain like that won't even be in the picture anymore because we will be doing our work from a position of rest. And so here's these truths, rest in, in these. The first, God is great. You know what this means? You don't have to be in control. God is great, so you and I do not have to be in control. Colossians 1, 16 to 17 says this, and hear this as I read this. This is not your resume, nor is it your job description. It's not my resume, and it's not my job description. This is Jesus' resume, and this is Jesus' job description. And God is great, so I don't have to be in control because he is and he's got it. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or COVID or whatever, right? All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and guess what? In him, not in you and your effort and your striving, it's in him all things hold together. God is great, so you don't have to be in control. Will you rest in that? God is glorious, so you don't have to fear others. Our call is to fear God alone. It means to worship him, to revere him, to be in awe of him, but sometimes we find ourselves fearing other people, and the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 27, the Lord he says, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? God is glorious. You don't have to fear others and you don't have to fear other circumstances. The Lord has got you. And God is good in addition to all this. So you don't have to look elsewhere. Here's what this means. You don't have to go looking for that thing to justify you. You don't have to go looking for some source to bring life. This is what Jesus talks about with the woman at the well, right, in John chapter 4. And she's been looking for it in all the wrong places. She's on to her, like her fifth husband at this point. And Jesus is like, listen, you're trying to find it in relationships. He offers her living water. He says, I'm the source. He's good. You don't have to look elsewhere. Maybe it's not in relationships that you're looking but maybe you're looking in your career or how well you do your grades or how well you do, you know, how just how well people like you or what you're able to do out in the world, the accolades that you get or the number of likes or people that follow you, all of that. Those sources are just like these polluted wells of which we continue to drink from. And Jesus says, I got something better. I offer you living water. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God is good and you don't have to look anywhere. And lastly, God is gracious, so you don't have to prove yourself. You have nothing to prove. I am most anxious, I am most stressed, I am most exhausted when I believe the lie that there's something I have to prove. Jesus made a promise, Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. As a pastor, you know what I felt in this COVID and this time? Like, eh, yeah, well, what are we gonna do? We gotta fix this, we gotta solve this, we gotta pivot to online, now we gotta do a hybrid, we gotta be online and in person, we gotta try and fix this. And what if I just rested for a moment that God is gracious, like I have nothing to prove, Jesus said he would build his church. It's not my church, it's not your church, it's Jesus' church, and he's going to build it. God is gracious, you got nothing to prove. To anyone, including yourself, 
You literally have nothing to prove because the God of the universe has set his affection upon you. So you don't have to prove yourself in grades or career. You don't have to prove yourself in relationships. You don't have to prove yourself at any level. You don't have to prove to the God of the universe that you're less of a sinner than you were a year ago. You don't have to prove that because Jesus has died for it all. This is why the writer of Hebrews says these glorious words in Hebrews 10. He says, every priest, here was the old way, Every priest stands daily at his service. The priest would have to go and repeatedly offer sacrifices. Why? Because the sin problem was still there. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But, it's always helpful to look in the scriptures for buts, all right? When it's just like, but this, but God, all right? But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. What a picture. Jesus is like, yeah, you, my enemy. I'm gonna prop my feet up on you as a footstool, right? Just like kicking back. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. God is gracious, you've got nothing to prove. Why? Because this is true. This historically happened, that Jesus made a once and for all sacrifice. He died in your place, in my place. He paid it all, and then he conquered Satan's sin and death by rising again on the third day. And he is seated at the right hand of God, and he's coming back one day. He's going to split the sky. He's going to come back, and he's going to restore everything. And what it tells us right now, the reason you don't have to prove anything, is he says, for, by a single offering, he is perfected for all time. In God's eyes right now, if you're a follower of him, You've already been perfected. You are holy and righteous because you have the holiness and the righteousness of King Jesus. Now you're like, well, I still got sin. And that's why he says this again. And those who are being sanctified. So he's continuing to work it out for you. But guess what? He's doing the sanctifying work. He's not asking you to load that up and say, all right, well, I saved you, but now you got to kind of clean everything up. He's saying, no, 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 you get to participate. You get to repent. You get to do that. But it's the saving work of God. So Church, how will we respond? I want to invite us to take a moment. Say, let's, let's repent of the ways we've been trying to prove ourselves. Let's repent of not believing that God is good, that he's great, that he's gracious, and all that he's glorious. Let's remember who he is. Let's continue to rejoice together. And one of the ways that we're going to do that, I'm going to pray for us. The worship team's going to come back up. And so if you're here in person, we invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to come up. There are elements that are here on either side of the stage. While the song sings, please go and get the elements, all right, and bring it back to your, to your seat. And you can stay standing to, to sing, or if you want to take time seated and pray, whatever you want to do, prepare your heart. If you're online, I want to invite you, gather some elements while this song is being played. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to that as well. And then... We're going to sing the song together. I'll come back up, and we will then partake together in this meal. So let me go ahead and pray for us. We'll sing. As you're ready, you can come up, get the elements, and uh, then we'll, I'll call us back together in just a moment. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace toward us. God, we thank you for the reality that you are the one that is at work, that you are our provider, that you are our protector. That even just the, the common things of life, God, that we would look out over, that we would look out over shelter, over a home that we live in, that we would look out and whether kids that are our own or we even just in this service, like we see and we, we hear kids and all that, God, it's just a reminder that like you provide, that you are a God that gives graciously. 
And so God, I thank you that you invite us to participate in these, this work of renewal of being your church and this time and this place, but I thank you that it is not our job description to build the church. I think it is not our job description to hold everything together. God, by the power of your spirit, lead us in repentance in the places where we have tried to shoulder things we were never meant to carry. May we lay those at your feet this morning. May we, may we be refreshed as we remember the truth, God, of who you are, of who you've made us as your sons and your daughters. In a few moments as we participate in this meal, would you allow it to nourish us? That we would feast on this reality that we've got nothing to prove that Jesus, you did the work. We just get to be the beneficiaries. And so we are so grateful. And so God, as we continue to worship, we pray that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.